me pone un, un épotes. Si tú no quieres hablar conmigo, dímelo para yo no llamarte ni molestarte, porque nada más quedaba tú. Real talk, real people, real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Yeah! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker movement with another amazing show for you today. But before we get started, I want to remind everyone that this platform was built because too often we as people, we were overlooked, we were labeled and put in boxes. But this is no longer our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Today's guest is amazing in so many ways. I want you guys to welcome Genevieve Gonzalez, known as Jenny, for those of us that know her. She has an MSCCCSLP. She is currently a bilingual speech language pathologist. She has served as an uh, adjunct professor at New York University and Mercy College, where she developed a curriculum and taught courses in multicultural issues in speech and language pathology. She's also received her undergraduate degree in communication sciences from New York University and her graduate degree in communication disorders from Mercy College. Jenny has obtained her bilingual extension from Teachers College. She holds an MA in multilingual multicultural studies from New York University and also holds an 092 intermediate administrative certification from Sacred Heart University. She is a very proud English and Spanish speaker from Puerto Rico, which is her home. Her language and culture means everything to her. She provides a personal experience for those that know her with a dual and second language learning experiences. She also shares a passion for performing in the arts, and she's the lead female singer for Danza Fiesta, Baile y Teatro Puertorriqueño in New York City. Jenny's dedication to her culture can be seen and heard everywhere she walks. Her professional and performing career as a fierce advocate for bilingual students in and out of special education. And as a speech language pathologist, her strong desire to continue the rich legacy and tradition of music and dance. She is proud to be a Puerto Rican female leader in this industry. We love her, Jenny Walker. Thank you so much for having me. It is my pleasure to be here. Jenny, just get us started. Tell us a little bit about you, your journey, and your story, if you will. Of course. So I think one of the th biggest things that um, I can remember as I go along this journey is the idea of redirection. The reality is that at 18 years old, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was not um, sitting here saying, I'm going to be a bilingual speech pathologist and I'm going to be an advocate. Um, I was just trying to figure it out. And the reality is that I got rejected and redirected a lot. And I think that's really important for people to know. Um, so it wasn't a linear journey. When I first started out at 18 years old, I knew for a fact that I wanted to go to NYU. Um, that was something that I was very sure about. But when I first applied to NYU, I applied as a social worker and I did not get in. So I got redirected. And in that journey, I realized that what I really wanted to do was work with kids. But I also wanted to incorporate this um, love that I had for singing. 
And um, speech pathology was a way that I could incorporate both. I was able to learn about my voice, um, how to project, how to um, sing those beautiful notes, but also it allowed me to understand language development. It helped me to enter a career that allows me to help kids communicate, uh, to help kids say mommy and poppy. Um, and that alone brings great joy in, in my life. Um, and what I realized throughout that journey is that uh, it really touched me because in my own household, um, I had a sibling who was um, in, who was receiving speech language pathology in school. And my mother was always told, you need to st stop speaking Spanish to your child. You are confusing him, only one language. And what people don't understand is that um, when you take away a language model, you are taking away a child's ability to communicate with their parent. You're taking away an essence of their identity. Um, you're impacting their self-esteem. And it's not a choice. Parents are not choosing to speak their native language oftentimes. They, that is their language. And so it became a really personal journey for me to advocate for students, to advocate for parents, and advocate for the fact that the native language is just as important as the English language. And in the end, what we want to provide is a rich language model for all of our students. You know, Jenny, there's a big debate about this, and those of us that are work in the education system truly understand that it's not linear. And there's a big debate about a child who is learning how to speak English as their second language. You know, don't speak English so you can move this faster. Um, don't speak in Spanish if you're going to move it faster. So there's this unbalance about how do we approach this. But first, I want to touch on the word redirection came a lot out from your mouth. And I'm very proud to understand that when we are working to learn a skill, mm -hmm. we're going to get turned down. And there's mm -hmm. many a times that we decide to choose a career, sometimes by choice, sometimes not by choice. And I really enjoyed hearing in your answer that there were times that you were put in a challenge and you did not turn back. So we are very lucky to have you here because I think that it allows everyone to understand that you are not able to get what you want immediately. That mm -hmm. may happen in steps and listening to you bring that joy back into that. I'm going to fall and get back up mentality really is special. Jenny, what do you like most about your work? Um, there's several things that I love about my work. Um, I love the fact that I really get to take on this um, social justice and advocacy uh, position, right? So essentially, my job right now is to provide fair and accurate assessments to bilingual students in order to accurately identify whether they have a speech and language disorder or a, a communication difference, right? So essentially what I'm doing is I am making sure that students who require specialized intervention in speech and language receive those services, but also making sure that we are not putting kids who are learning a second language, which is English, 
that we are not putting those kids in special education. That in fact, we are identifying what the needs are and providing them uh, in the classroom and through uh, EL instruction, but not through special education. Because once our students enter special education, um, it becomes very difficult to come out. And the reality is, is that if you're learning a second language, that's not a disability. That is a beautiful journey that requires a lot of support. I think another aspect that I really enjoy is being a cultural broker, because what I do is I am the bridge between parents, their concerns for their kids, and teachers and their concerns for that child, and helping everyone around the table to understand the child for who he is and all of the funds of knowledge that he comes with. Um, and really begin to value that so that we can make decisions that are in the best interest of our students. You know, you bring out some very critical points in a parent and the child in their journey when they enter our schools. It is a known fact that when a parent is relying on a school system to support them, it becomes very difficult for them to understand the navigation piece, especially for us, the Latino population. As parents, we continuously are asking questions sometimes, and sometimes we rather let the schools direct us in the way that it should be told or said. To me, that's a little bit different in many ways because there will be times that a child is going to require an advocate. And in listening to your answer, there has to be a stopper there to really tease out if this student is going to be eligible for specialized learning and the reasons why they should not. And I do appreciate that in that broker piece, you're able to allow the parent to see both sides of this angle. So you're not also telling them, well, do this and not that, even from your position, you're looking at this from I'm in your shoes kind of walk. And I really admire that because for parents that are listening to us now, it is almost critical to understand that when a child is receiving specialized learning, that should be that. And having English or learning the language should not be classified as a special education. Could you help us understand within your area of practice, what are some of your job duties when you are trying to detail a student to or not to receive services? So I think the, the biggest thing that I think about as I complete these evaluations and these assessments is understanding linguistic and cultural biases. That's number one, because what's happening is that we are using um, as a field, as a profession, and we are doing a great job in educating. Um, so I, I want people to understand that as speech pathologists, um, we are very open and we understand the issues in this area. But the reality is, is that oftentimes we are using exams that are based on English language speakers. 
So essentially when they make these exams, they get a, a population and they test it on this population. The problem is that that population is English speaking only. So when you take those exams and you give them to a bilingual student who is going to sound differently, um, who is going to use different grammatical um, deviances, and you don't give them the opportunity to get credit for the way that they've put their language together based on the influence of the first language, then you're creating a situation in which they're getting everything wrong. But they're not getting any everything wrong because they don't know the language. They're not getting everything wrong because they don't understand the cultural value in the United States. They're getting it wrong because they haven't happened, had an opportunity to learn it. And so therein lies the problem. When they're getting everything wrong on these assessments, and these are the assessments that we're using to qualify kids into special education, then that's where we get the overrepresentation. So understanding the linguistic and cultural biases. Uh, for example, I remember a fellow student um, when I was at NYU working on my postmasters who was um, from an Asian country. And she talked about that at five years old, she had to take some test that a psychologist gave her. And the question was, um, you want the swing, but there's someone on the swing. So um, these are your choices. You can go over and tell the person um, that to get off the swing because you want to use it. You can go over and tell the person, um, I'd like to use the swing when you're done. Do you mind just letting me know when you're done? Or you can just sit there and watch the person and not communicate that you even want the swing. And for her, she said, culturally, I wouldn't say anything. I'd just sit there. And she got it wrong because in our, in American culture, you, you speak, your needs, right? In a pragmatically appropriate way. So here we are giving these tests, whether they're psycho psychological tests, academic tests, or speech and language tests, and we are not under always understanding the cultural and linguistic biases that are involved. There's a lot of pressure in what your answer has sent out for me, because first of all, for those people who are listening, I want them to understand some of our Latin students who enter this country as newcomers already compressed with several issues when they flee their countries. So entering this country on a particular day, three days later, they're at, they're at the doorstep of our schools ready to be tested, whether standardized tests or lost links or whatever it is, these students are put in situations that they are not properly assessed when we're thinking about what the needs are. We can assume that there's trauma. And when I was listening to you earlier, when you're talking about the you know, this side of communication disorder, or is it part of an ethnic group that, that is latched on and their struggle to catch on is so difficult. Even in, when you talk about this assessment, when, someone doesn't feel comfortable using their words of being laughed at or maybe not saying it correctly or not being able to use their language to express it, that communication and that social story to me is telling to some of the issues that we have. So I am urging people to get a better scope of this if they can go on YouTube and just 
put in most dangerous schools and pick mm -hmm. any of our Latin countries so that you on your own can visualize and see what some of our learners have to do to even get an education in our countries. So it's super difficult to even do that. Can you tell us a little bit about what a communication disorder is and how common is that with students and with adults? Sure. So I have to be honest in that my experience has really been in the school system. Mm -hmm. um, so I hesitate to speak in regards to the adult population. But when it comes to um, the population in the school system, unfortunately, and I referenced this before, there's an overrepresentation. So um, even if I were to give you a number, the reality is that that number is inflated because mm -hmm. um, of these cultural and linguistic biases that we've been talking about. But essentially, a communication disorder is, is, is a, a difficulty in understanding language and or using language, right? And when we talk about a communication disorder versus a communication difference, a communication difference is just a different way of communicating from the social norms, mm -hmm. from the majority ethnicity or ethno, majority ethno-linguistic community, right? So when we have students who sound a little bit different, who may say things a little bit different, and we don't understand that a communication difference can exist, then all of a sudden we label them as having a communication disorder. And that is where the problem lies. And I think that it's also important to talk about when we start labeling these kids, it will inevitably impact their self-esteem because these kids know that they don't have a language disability, right? Mm -hmm. Because they, they speak their native language quite well. If they're tested in their native language, they score within the average range. So they know I don't have a disability. So now you start impacting the way they think about themselves. And then we start impacting their identity because then it becomes English only, only speak English. And so the goal really should not be to assimilate when you come to this country. The goal should be to acculturate. Mm -hmm. And that is what's going to lead to more a more healthy self-esteem and a healthy identity. I certainly could not pick one over the other. I could not pick being Puerto Rican over being American. And I couldn't pick being American over Puerto Rican because both make me who I am. And mm -hmm. so I think that um, we have to be really careful in understanding what our goals are when it comes to our students. And in the end, we want to raise and produce people who are who give back to society and the only way you could give back to society is if you know who you are and you're grounded in that so it's a big deal to not understand a communication disorder versus a communication difference because it can impact someone for all of their lives you know recently i put in a small proposal and i had a presentation where i was sharing about an idea that i had it's called latin voices groups and I said that if our schools were able to house these restorative circles with our MLL students early in the morning, and it won't be inclusive to them only, any student, including our special education or behavioral students, 
but just to get a gist of what the culture is. Because I think that when you talk about that social emotional piece, there is a big outlier where our students are trying to work themselves in a system that's already created. Mm -hmm. And that becomes difficult when they're left out, can't understand, and they get lashed out with aggression. They shut down. And there are other things that come up for them. When I was thinking about the adult piece, I know that when I'm trying to translate in some of our meetings, I always urge people to start from a strengths perspective. Mm -hmm. They're going to understand what to say about our students and our families. I don't care if we met them just five minutes ago. We have to be able to do that in order to try to assimilate what they are feeling. And the work that you do speaks to that. Because when you do get the students, whether you get them individually or you get them in groups, you can connect with them because of who you are and what you look like and sound like. And even for me, a provider who's with a lot of experience and I've worked for many years, I carry an accent right. in English and in Spanish. Me and too. I do that proudly. And there's a lot of ways that we become rigid, even adults, to try to speak the language because we're afraid that it doesn't sound the correct way. So when I'm thinking about this, I'm very concerned about how adults are left out of this when they bring our students in, whether they bring them in for to be part of our school communities or whether they're looking out there for community resources. And I think that when we are trying to be culturally sensitive, mm. we must include the opportunity to start from a strengths perspective to welcome them. And finally, when these kids enter this country, we are ripped of our cultural identities. We no longer have these holidays that we used to celebrate before. So this conversation for me is rich, Jen, because I know that we've spoken at length about this. And that's one of my biggest concerns that people don't understand. When we enter this country, we lose part of our culture and our fabric because now we have entered a country that we must celebrate holidays that don't match ours. And we learn a language losing our identity and our flavor because now we have transformed and now the parents never learn English and the students do. So I was very concerned about that piece. But what do you think that our parents should be looking for when they think that there is a speech impairment for their children within the um, household? So this happens a lot. And um, it's unfortunate that oftentimes even medical professionals don't understand bilingual development. Listen, I get it. They got other things that they need to be worried about. Mm -hmm. um, but when you have pediatricians who tell parents, oh, your child is not speaking, um, there must be something wrong with them. You should only speak English. It becomes a problem. And so we get these referrals, right? And mm -hmm. that is not to say that there are not bilingual students or second language learners who don't have a disability. Absolutely. However, um, oftentimes what they need is time, is time to have experiences in both languages, is time for them to um, 
increase their vocabulary. But some specific things to look for is no matter what language you speak and no matter how many languages you speak, um, there are certain milestones. And so um, by six months, we expect babies to be cooing at the very least and begin their babbling. Mm -hmm. And so that's essentially them just creating sounds and um, acting as if they're having a conversation, but nobody really knows what they're saying. Mm -hmm. um, by a year old, they should be using one word utterances. So they should be using words to label, words to request, um, just one word at a time. We're not looking for sentences. At two years old, now if you're following me, you're realizing that it goes along with the age. At two years old, we're looking at two word utterances, right? So mommy go. Um, I want, right? And when we're talking about kids who are being exposed to two languages, that's when you're going to start seeing code mixing. And mm -hmm. code mixing is quite typical and appropriate. And it is not something that we should be ashamed of. We should not be um, correcting children. It's okay to say um, more agua. That's okay. They're learning two languages. At three years old, you could probably predict we're looking for three word utterances or more, right? Um, yo quiero water. It's okay to mix, but they're putting those three words together. We're on the right track. And at four years old, that's when they start using sentences and they start beginning, beginning to give narratives. So they'll tell you what they did in their day. Um, and that's a very exciting time. Now, when you're dealing with bilingual students, or second language learners, we do um, we do talk about giving a little bit of a leeway. So you know, we talk about a, a spectrum in that. Okay, at two years old, I'm expecting two word utterances, but I'm not expecting it at 24 months, right? So maybe at 30 months, they're using two word utterances. So allowing them the spectrum, the 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 time to be able to process the two languages, to be able to imitate in the two languages. So while we have that, that timeline, when you're dealing with students who are hearing more than one language, also understanding that it's not a delay. I would not call it a delay, but they're dealing with more than one language. So they need a little bit more time. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't jump. Now, if we're dealing with a four-year-old who's just using one word utterances, so he's only saying water, sleep, go, that's a problem, right? Because now we've, we've, gave, we've given way too much time. Um, so those are things to think about. Understand the milestones. They kind of go along with the age in terms of what the expectation is. But if you're seeing huge um, discrepancies between the age and what the expectation is, then, then I, that would be a concern. You know, not to make fun of us because even as adults, we'd be dropping the Spanglish for and sure. Then, I don't know if we're going to be assessed in any way here on this show, but I'm going to say that for the most part, I, I, you know that when you and I spoke, we were talking English, Spanish mixed together and blended it nicely. Um, it, it's to me, it's more of the population having to deal already with so much. And one of the things that I want people to know is that I had a past guest that was on my show you know, we learned that a child is learning what 
he or she is being taught at home. Mm -hmm. They are imitating what's being said. So we can try to produce the bulk of heavy literature and information and work and so on. However, the student, when he or she goes home, they have no backdrop and they're coming in only with the imitation and those habits can be corrected. And it's people like yourself and professionals like you that do the work that make this change drastically happen. And you know that there's people that said it takes seven years to kind of learn the English language. Is that something that you think about and say, is that true to you? Uh, yes. And I'm glad you brought this up because I think it's really important. It, it's a thing. And so here's the thing. Um, it takes, according to studies, and of course, you know, you could get one study that says one thing and one says another. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, we're looking at three to five years for second language learners to master um, everyday language, right? So that's that contextually rich language. That's the, what did you do yesterday? I went to the movies and I got popcorn, right? They lived it. That's the, the experience they could speak about. Now, when it comes to that seven-year mark, studies show that it could take seven to 10 years to get the academic language mm. that's necessary to succeed in the classroom. So that academic language is going to be more of that abstract. So you maybe didn't experience it. Um, it's, it's more literal than anything else. So, you know, it makes me think about our babies who come in and they're not only trying to learn English, but they're trying to learn the socialization aspect of English and they're trying to learn the academic aspect. So if it can take some students 10 years and they started in first grade, a bulk of their academic career is them just trying to learn the academic language that is necessary to su succeed. Now, there are some things that play a, a part in that. One is motivation. Motivation is number one in a second language learner's um, ability to, to grasp the second language. If they're motivated, they're gonna, it's gonna happen a little bit quicker. And there's actually something called language aptitude. And language aptitude is what we call an ear for language, right? So we know that there are people who they hear something or they hear a language and they pick it up really easily. You know, I've heard of people who are like, I learned Spanish by watching novelas. Uh, it, that's a thing. And so if you have the motivation, if you have a good language aptitude, and I'm going to add a third one, if you have a solid foundation in your first language, then you're going to be, it's going to be easier, slightly easier to learn the second language because you have this fund of um, language in and of itself. And, the, and you understand the function of language and you understand grammar, it may not be the grammar of the new language, but you understand that there are rules to language. So there's a few things that come into play when we're talking about learning a second language, but it certainly is not an easy task. And yet we ask students to do it every day. Yeah, you know, and I'm thinking about adults who are trying to learn Spanish mm -hmm. for the first time, how difficult that could be for them. Because many a times, um, when you walk into a location and you're only an English speaker, 
and many Spanish people are speaking at the same time. It's like a deer with headlights. They can't really grasp. It's so much going on. We have dialects and slang and things that happen in real time that's very difficult sometimes to pick up. And some of us don't speak Spanish properly. We're just mm -hmm. taught the basics of how to communicate and we get to do that. You know, when you are thinking of the students, like the newcomers or English learners, these students in many aspects during COVID mm. entered the country during that space. And you talked about that seven to 10 year spot. Think about a student who did not really go to school in our native country, comes in here, the pandemic hits, and now this student is faced with additional worries and concerns about acclimation, but also struggling to capture language after being in the home for a year or two years. So to put this in perspective, a student of age appropriate to be in grade seven mm -hmm. may have skipped seventh and eighth grade and wind up going to high school mm -hmm. from the jump. And that I think impacts college and career. I think that that impacts our graduation rates and our parents, because they're only able to work, they cannot dedicate extra time to this, they're behind. What are some of the assessments that you're trying to provide these learners, whether the newcomers, MLLs, when they first come over to you? So when once they come, once they're referred to me, the referral is saying that there is a suspicion of uh, speech and language disability, right? So... Um, if all goes well, they would enter the country, get registered for school. And like you said, they would take these language proficiency tests. They would be placed in a classroom and, um, interventions and supports would be provided in the classroom, understanding that the student is still learning English. Mm -hmm. Now, if those interventions and supports are provided in the classroom, then the student should make progress. However, if those interventions and supports are not being provided, of course, the student is going to look like they have a disability or those interventions and supports are provided and they're not making progress. Now that's a real concern. That would be an appropriate referral. So when they come to me, the first thing I do is I uh, speak to parents. I want to get a developmental history. Um, because I need to understand what were those milestones, right? So when they were in their native country, did the child babble? Was the child using one word utterances at one year old? Was the child using sentences at four years old? I want to understand the language trajectory of the student. I also want to understand any um, trauma or medical um, issues that may have impacted the student's ability to learn. And when I give these examinations, I have to be keenly aware of those biases and also understanding that these assessments test what the child has learned up until that point, what the child has experienced up until that point. And so if that child has not been schooled in, in, in our country, um, then guess what? they're not going to know what I'm trying to test. So teasing out as a, as a result of that, um, what is their ability to learn? So when we give these exams, what we're doing is we're testing what they've learned up to this point, the product. Mm -hmm. 
I need to test the process. I need to know, do you have the capability to learn language? And so I do that through dynamic assessment. So essentially using the information that I get from these standardized exams, however, going deeper, right? So um, doing a, a test, teach, retest. So actually giving the test, teaching them the concepts that they got wrong and retesting because that's going to tell me they have the ability to learn because by me teaching the concepts, they got it right. And if I teach it and they don't get it right, now that's also informing me there may be a disconnect in their ability to learn language. Could you help our listeners know how difficult it is when we are translating and we're trying to let the parent feel that they're in the seat of power, that they're mm. running the show, that they're mm. understanding. Many a times in our translation, those of us who have dealt with meetings and other people who are not going to dive into the empathetic side of this, mm. there's a big loss that happens within that language. Now, our adult parents and those that we are working with, they begin now to struggle and their answers are short because their trauma is also unresolved. So there's something that you talked about, the motivational piece. Is it sequential? How is the play skills? How, how is the child working at home to understand that? So I want our listeners to understand that your job isn't easy and it's not easier because of the dedication that you pour into this. I always say to people, when you're bilingual, it's like you have two sides of your brain, right? You have the Spanish side that you hold and respect culture and essence. And then you have the American side that is showing you how to and to move forward and progress and so on. So for us, it's always interlinking. Mm -hmm. And that's how I interpret that as a bilingual provider, that I have to look at these sides. But I'm very weary of someone who approaches a parent and cannot be sensitive when they are sharing out this information about their child. Because if it's chopped up and no, your child can't read, your child can't talk, that is delivered and understood in a very, very different way. So I think that that is some of the issues, even for some of our Haitian Creole parents. And we talked about this, you know, stuttering. Mm -hmm. That's something that becomes like a commonality. What are you thinking about these Haitian Creole students when they come in and usually have this issue of stuttering? So stuttering is really, um, it's interesting. Um, you know, the term that we use as speech language pathologists is disfluency. Um, and of course, the common term is is stuttering. The issue with stuttering is that there is a moment in our in development in which stuttering is developmentally appropriate. So when we're looking at four and five year olds, um, oftentimes that stuttering is the result of them thinking quicker than their articulators can move. Mm -hmm. um, and so that creates the stutter. Other times, someone like me, um, while I speak Spanish, I definitely think in English. I'm more fluent in English. So when I speak in Spanish, there'll be pauses. I'll stop um, because I have to think about the vocabulary just a little bit more than I would in English. So that's something to consider when we're talking about whether you're a Haitian Creole speaker learning to speak English, you're a Spanish speaker learning to speak 
English, you are going to be more fluent in the language that you dominate. Another thing with stuttering is that a true stutterer has um, body movement and facial grimaces that accompany their stutter. So if you have someone who's stuttering, but they're totally relaxed, their body's relaxed, you don't see their face getting stuck, then it's probably developmental. It's probably that they're trying to think of the word in this new language. We're not concerned. Um, but, you know, I, I, I would demonstrate it, but I, sometimes it just feels a little disrespectful to demonstrate um, what you would see. But understand that uh, the, the cheeks would get stuck, the lips, the, you would see tension in the neck. It is There is a, a discomfort that you see the person in when they're a true stutterer. And when the, the issue with stuttering is that it is very difficult to, um, to, to not treat, but to um, make it disappear. Um, you know, oftentimes what we do as speech pathologists is we actually help clients come to the realization that they're stutterers and to tell people, I'm a stutterer. And so just so the other person expects it and it kind of creates less tension and we teach compensatory strategies. But when it comes to second language learning, it's really important to understand that if it is a true stutter, you're going to see that tension in the body or in the face and you're going to hear the stuttering in both languages. So if you're only hearing it in the language that they are yet to be dominant in, it's probably developmental. And as they continue to learn the second language, they shall become more fluent. I am Latino and I'm also half Haitian myself. So there is a spirituality piece that's Mm -hmm. underlined Mm -hmm. under this ability to not speak at a certain rate. I too struggle with stuttering and Mm -hmm. stuttered at a younger age to believe now that I have my own radio show and I do different things, it's almost impossible to think that these things are possible. But the word motivation for me always resonates. And I think that for our parents that are listening, they should stick to the script, let them try to work their ways. And the last thing I'll say to that is breathing. I Mm -hmm. always tell my students, when you are struggling to get a word out and you have this tightness, deep breath. Just relax. No one is going to leave until you say what you need to say. And it's sometimes struggling for them and frustrating. But I also know that the repetitiveness, their ability to continue to work on their craft. So shout out to all my Haitian Creole students and Latino students who are stuttering. There is a way out of this. It's it's really on you and you being able to take your time. So thank you for shedding light on that. I wanted to also ask, you know, you have seen thousands of students and you've treated various students for different things. Is there a student that you can think about and say, wow, this is a case that I wake up every day and say, yes, this student motivates me to do this. And I remember this student a lot when I am struggling. Do you have such a case? I have a few that come to mind. Um, And this goes back to 
the days where I gave therapy. Right now, uh, you know, with my assessments, um, once I'm, I, I understand the need of the child, I then pass them off to the appropriate service provider. Um, but there was a student, um, she was not bilingual, but she had, she, I met her when she was in second grade and she had um, a, a di disorder disease that essentially, for lack of a better way of explaining it, kind of ate away at her brain. Right. So so we're talking about something that would be progressive. Right. If she was never going to get better. There was nothing that um, medically they could do. So when I met her, she wasn't speaking. And by the time we got to fifth grade, people would come up to me and say she is your miracle child because she doesn't stop talking. And she was talking in sentences and she was just explaining things and narrating things. And I would say things in Spanish just because I do that. Somebody would sneeze and I would say salud. And she'd be like, salud. And like say it so beautifully. And um, she is someone that I will take with me Oh, it, it actually brings tears to my eyes because um, it, it was not a student that I thought I could make a difference in her life. And, and I was able to make a difference in her life and in her family's, family's life. And um, that's, that's the joy that comes with a profession like this. Thank you so much for being transparent. And I didn't want to put you on the spot in that way, but I know that in order for you to do this work, you have to get synced in. You have to get pulled in one way or the other. And sharing a story as such can help our parents and listeners to understand it is possible because we built this particular platform for that because we don't want people to feel that they cannot do something. This is the land of I will keep trying mm -hmm. I have a growth mindset. So thank you for that. If you were not a speech pathologist, <laughs> what you would have been, and I know that the singing part is one of them, but what yeah. what other career you would have probably taken? So there's no doubt about it. I would have been on stage. Mm. I think a Broadway performer. Um, I think that, and this, I think we're, you know, this has the potential of, of getting off topic, but I also think that whoever needs to hear this will be listening. Um, I think sometimes we don't believe in ourselves. Mm. And I picked the um, the most stable profession. Um, however, uh, yeah, I would have been on Broadway. No doubt about it. Well, you still have a chance. And when you do make it famous, make sure you send tickets our way. Um, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> here, we are more than just, you know, we have people who have come on this platform to share, but their love and passion is somewhere else. And that's totally fine as well. And we do applaud you for that. What, what do you do for self-care? I know the number of students that you see day in and day out and your brain is cracked and now you do the singing. What, what do you do to take care of yourself? So meditation is huge. Mm. And, um, you know, I really, appreciated the fact that you brought up the spiritual part. Um, I, you know, spirituality is huge for me. Um, and it is what keeps me motivated, keeps me strong, keeps mm. me putting one foot in front of the other. Um, so meditation is huge. Um, 
of course, singing and dancing. That's just an energy that I have to release. Um, you know, also, I love a good meal. Uh, you mm. know, <laughs> so dinner dates are super important, whether they are with my husband mm. or they are with my friends or colleagues. And it's more about the food and more than the food. It's more about um, communing mm. and being around other people that will allow you to reflect, that will provide guidance, counsel, where you can get advice from, um, because certainly um, you can't get through life without connections. And I know for me, connections are really human connection. I mean, listen, you wouldn't have chosen social work. I wouldn't have chosen speech pathology if we didn't want need or know how to connect with others. And that's what makes us successful, right? And then my guilty pleasure is reality TV. Mm. A good love and hip hop, a good real housewives, mm. just my guilty pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the things that I, I do to, uh, to ground me. You know, when people talk to us and with us, they understand that there is going to be three things coming their way. That's going to be music, food, and potentially telenovelas. Uh-huh. I want to make sure that people understand what we feel when there's a certain song or music that comes on for us, whether it is to clean the house, whether it is to unwind, or whether it is to just get together with family and friends to share out and I encourage everyone to use that therapeutic piece that you shared out because I think that is massive in making that connection. You know, you also talked about the ability to make sure that you redirect yourself. Yeah. And maybe you have these times that you believe that things are not going the way that you thought, but know that these connections these memories that you've allowed us to step into with you will touch people to understand what to do. Now, for those of us that want to take, you know, language pathology or become Mm -hmm. a language therapist, what are, what are the steps that you are recommending for those listeners who want to take this on as a career? So I think number one is um, finding a place where you can observe and volunteer. That's Mm. how I started. Um, Mm. I didn't know what speech language pathology was. And quite frankly, the way that I was introduced was I was in a hospital elevator. Somebody walked in with the wrong lab. Oh, it was my mom. She worked in the hospital and I was working with her and we were physical therapy technicians. And my mom wore the wrong lab coat. And when I looked at the label, it said speech language pathology. And I said, what's that? Mm. Uh Uh-huh. And um, quickly got myself into the hospital, did observations, got myself into the public school, did observations, because I needed to make sure that if I was going to invest financially and invest my time in this, I wanted to make sure that this is what I really wanted to do. So my advice is get in there. Find mentors who are in the field, ask them questions. Don't be afraid to ask difficult questions because you you are about to make a very important decision that will impact the rest of your life. You do not want to enter a profession that you 
are not going to be happy in. Once you figure out this is it, then you got to do your due diligence and figure out what school is best for you. Some schools will um, will emphasize the medical part of speech language pathology because as speech language pathologists, we could work with, as you mentioned, adults who have had strokes, who have difficulty swallowing, um, who have aphasia. I mean, it's it's a whole other career and it's a wonderful one. And then there's the part where you work with pediatrics. Um, so really making sure that you know the population that you want to work with. And if you don't, then picking the school that allows you to explore both. Um, and then once you're in, I got to tell you, commit, 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 because the academic part of it is really difficult. And I remember being at NYU because eventually I did get into NYU um, mm. more than once. Um, I remember saying to my parents, I have to eat, live and breathe speech pathology in order to get through this program. So making sure that you have the grit and uh, the commitment and dedication to get through it. Because once you do, um, you will make a ton of difference in, in the lives of the people that you, you enter. And those that are listening, Jenny Gonzalez, the real deal when it comes to speech pathology, not only is she helping convert our students to become confident and more educated about their communication styles and pieces. She's also bringing this empathy yeah. and this side of an advocate to make sure that these students are learning at a pace that's acceptable to them and that they are not marginalized. I'm so proud of the work that you continue to do. What is difficult about your job? Because you keep talking about the fun stuff. What is ah, difficult about your job? That's a great question because they're so, okay, because there is difficulty. Um, the difficulty is when educators are not ready to mm. hear that the student doesn't have a disability because what that means is that they might have to do a little bit more. They might have to provide um, their instruction in a way that is a, is different from what they've been doing. Um, what I will say is that I've been doing this for over two decades and um I know that I've earned the respect of my colleagues. And so while there might be pushback, while there might be um, difficulty in accepting um, what we know about the student, the reality is, is that um, they're always ready to collaborate. So I think that the pushback can be difficult. Um, I think also um, making sure that parents really understand the process mm. Um, and what it is that I'm saying. And so, you know, you talk about that empathy part. The empathy part for me is also um, being very authentic with my parents. So when a student doesn't qualify, just today, there was a student I evaluated and the student didn't qualify. And the mom in Spanish was a little incredulous, but excited. And I said to her, yes, yay. He doesn't qualify. You're doing an amazing job. And sometimes I even, I go back to what we know that we value as Latinos. And I, I will give out sometimes a gracias a Dios, right? Mm -hmm. because, because our parents, we are, are uh, you know, when we talk about um, our family values, 
that is something that comes up a lot. And so really getting to the level of my parents and also getting them to understand if it is a disability, right? And understanding what that looks like. I've had parents who have um, gotten angry and said, my child does not have a disability. How dare you say that? You're saying that my child is dumb. You're saying that my child is stupid. And so redirecting that understanding so that parents know that's not that's not what special education means. That's not what having a speech and language disability means. What it means is that your child learns a little bit different and we're here to provide that support so that they can be successful. Um, I think as I think, as I reflect on what I've just talked about, I think communication is, is the key. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's important for people to understand that they need to celebrate when they're not yes. because it allows them to become independent faster. And if the student does need the supports, then so be it. Let those be words that people understand and connect with because being eligible isn't always right. I want to also give you the time now, friend, to just take the floor and just tell our listeners what you want them to remember about you, Jenny, about the work, about what you want them to feel encouraged about. The floor is yours. So I think that in the end, in order to make it more general so that it resonates, I think that for me, um, I want people to leave here understanding the journey, the journey of students who are learning a second language, the journey of students who are learning a second language and have a speech and language disability, and understanding all the things that happen in that journey. And even the journey of us as adults, figuring out who we are, what our career path is, what our purpose is, what our passion is, and understanding this idea of redirection. I I don't know for whatever reason, it's been a word that's been coming up a lot for me. Um, And understanding that if at first you don't succeed, you try, try again, and in that redirection, figure out what it is that you're supposed to learn. Um, because certainly when I became, when I thought I was going to be a social worker, I didn't anticipate that two decades later, I'd be sitting in front of you talking about being a bilingual speech pathologist, right? So, um, making sure that, um, we really understand our purpose and, uh, and allowing that purpose to motivate us and keep us moving forward. Thank you, friend. I'm going to let everyone know that everyone has their own journey. Whether you get on the elevator and someone is rocking a coat that says a title that you believe you may fit, or there's a career that you don't know when that spirituality steps up for you. I want you to redirect yourself. I want you to motivate yourself just like Jenny did, just like we all do. Because on this platform, we are never going to be overlooked. Our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Tune in friends to a He's Just a New Social Worker show coming near you real soon. We are. Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients. Thank you for listening. We're always here for you. Just message us and we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you. More than just.
at He's Just a Social Worker. In memory of my mother, Matilde De La Rosa, this is dedicated to you, Mom. Miss you so much. En memoria de mi madre, Matilde De La Rosa, esto va dedicado a ti, Mamá. Te extraño mucho. <laughs>